Hello and welcome along to the greatest show in the history of the universe. It's the award-winning, all-conquering, solar system exploring, fun kids science weekly. My name is Dan. Talking about the universe, this week we'll chat to space expert Mike Darch all about the search for life all around us in different places. The universe is absolutely mega big and it makes searching for life quite difficult. So we try to narrow it down. So as I was saying, we've only found life on Earth. So when beginning our search, we are looking for places have Earth-like features, Earth-like qualities to them. So when you're looking out there, we're looking for planets, places that have water, have nice atmospheres, maybe a little bit bigger, a bit smaller, but around the same size as our planet Earth, because Earth seems to be the perfect place for life to begin at the moment. And we'll check in with Benny and Mao. They are microbes. They are good friends. They live in your gut. And this week, they're telling us all about diseases that try and get in to harm you. Some of the nastiest diseases, like polio and smallpox, have been virtually obliterated is that enough people have been vaccinated, so the germs have nowhere left to go. It's called population immunity, or sometimes herd immunity. And I've got your questions to answer this week. It's all about oxygen and daylight savings time. Why do the clocks go forwards and back? Let's find out in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start off with your science in the news. Artificial intelligence could save lives by warning where a hurricane will land quickly. That's what scientists have said. They report that AI predicted where Hurricane Lee would hit land in Canada back in September, three days ahead of traditional weather forecasts. They say its ability to analyse past hurricanes and make predictions about the future works well, and it could be a game-changer to get people out of the way quickly and save lives. This is really important with AI. We we sometimes are worried about uh, AI coming here, taking everyone's jobs, maybe taking over the world. Uh, but like right now, we can really use it to help humanity and help the world. And getting an accurate vision and forecast of what's happening around the world can give us the best possible chance to save as many people and make many, many lives better. Also, a footprint thought to be 140 million years old has been spotted in the UK. The three-toed footprint is thought to belong to an iguanodon dinosaur. It was found on Brown Sea Island in the UK. It's believed that the island broke off from a bigger part of the country where dinosaurs are thought to have roamed all those years ago. I love that all around the world, and right now the country that I am in, we're finding proof that dinosaurs probably lived there way, way back. How amazing is it to think all that time ago a dinosaur might have wandered up the streets where you walk to school right now? And finally this week, red alerts have been sent out in almost 3,000 towns and cities across Brazil because of a huge heat wave there. Rio de Janeiro went up to 42.5 degrees last weekend. It's a record high for this time of year. But scientists say that because of the humidity, that's the amount of moisture in the air, it felt much, much hotter. More than 100 million people have been affected by the heat and they say that climate change is a major cause of the heat wave. And it does really remind us that... You might not be aware of the impacts of climate change every day, but it's being felt all around the world and the little decisions that we make 
can have a big, big impact on someone else's life that live half the planet away from you. Let's check in with Techno Mum then. She's our favourite gadget genius, don't you know? She's been on the show recently because she knows everything about technology, engineering, why we use the things that we do, how they are made, who came up with them this week. We're talking about energy with Techno Mum and all about renewable energy sources. Techno Mum Fast Files. From driving to heating to watching telly, we need energy to power all areas of life. But the way we get energy is changing, and it has to. Fossil fuels used in power stations won't last forever, so newer types of fuel are being developed all the time, like bio-oil that can be made from poo. Another part of the mix is renewable energy. That's energy that won't run out. Wind, water, and the sun are types of renewable energy. In fact, having a mix is a really popular idea, and there's even a word for it, integrated energy. It just means using a variety of different ways to get heat and electricity. Some renewable sources, some new fuels, and, until we can stop using them completely, nuclear and non-renewable fuels like coal, oil and gas. But the less energy we use, the less we need to make. Maybe you could walk instead of taking a car to school and switch off lights you're not using. What other ways can you think of to save energy? Technomom with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing knowledge. All right, let's get to my favourite part of the show, where, well, it's not Technomom that's the genius now, it's, uh, it's me! I love answering your questions every week. If there's anything sciencey that you ever want to know, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app. You can do it too at funkidslive.com. First one this week is from Patrick. I was wondering where do oxygen particles come from and why can't you see them? Thank you. Bye. All right, Patrick. Where do energy particles come from and why can't we see them? Here's what's really amazing. And I don't think we think about how brilliant this is. Uh, Oxygen comes from plants, mostly. You might have heard about photosynthesis. Maybe you've learned that at school. It's how plants stay alive. And, well, it's how we do too. You see, a plant to survive, it needs water, sunlight and carbon dioxide. It gets sunlight from, well, the sun, water, normally from the rain or in the ground, and it gets carbon dioxide from you and from me. Don't worry, it's not just you that needs to power every single plant on the planet. It gets it from all of us and all of the creatures. When we breathe out, we put carbon dioxide into the air. And when a plant gets these things, it gives it the energy to survive and it makes oxygen, right? So we need that to breathe in. It's this incredible cycle where us and plants, we're kind of using each other's gas. So that's how a lot of the oxygen is around us. And actually, scientists think half of the oxygen in the air comes from plants, bacteria and algae in the ocean. And we can't see oxygen, Patrick. Well, simply because the particles are so small, they're so spaced out that light waves pass them by. They don't hit them to reflect back to us. So we can't see them, Patrick. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, Here is one from Leo and his sister Hannah, who left this uh, as a review for the Fun Kids Science Weekly on Apple Podcasts. They want to know why some countries use daylight savings time and others don't. If you're in the UK, uh, you might have spotted a few weeks ago at the end of October, the clocks went back. In six months' time, they will jump forward again. It's called daylight savings time. We use it to help us make the most of light throughout the day through the year. We move clocks forwards and backwards, normally by an hour here in the UK, so that we can have more light in the evenings or the mornings as light 
gets to different parts of the day right through the year. That way, the idea is that we can save electricity but because we don't need lights on all the time. Now, Canada was the first country to have daylight savings time. They started it in 1908. About 70 countries use daylight savings to make the most of the sunlight, but some countries don't bother because they think, well, they get a lot of light through the day because of where they are in the world. If you're in a pole near the North Pole or South Pole, you'll get a lot of light throughout all the day in certain parts of the year, so they don't need it. Or they don't do it because they don't think it's worth the fuss of moving the clocks all around and they say it doesn't save on energy. So that's why we have have it leo and your sister hannah thank you so much for the question if there is anything you want answered next week on the podcast make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free fun kids app or at funkidslive.com it's the fun kids science weekly this week we're hoping to solve and expose some secrets and figure out how we search for life across the universe with the help from our good friend Mike Darch, who is from the National Space Centre in Leicester. Mike, thanks for being there. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. So just to start things off, the current state of our awareness of things in the universe that aren't us, do experts, are they quite confident that there is other things out there? So right now, we've not found any evidence that there's life beyond Earth. The only life we found in the entire universe is on our planet. And we are looking out there and we are making some interesting discoveries that hopefully might lead us to find life out there. In space agencies' history of scanning the universe, do you know if they've bookmarked any planets out there where they're thinking, oh, this might be a good spot where life could behave. Absolutely. So in the last couple of years, NASA and um, the European Space Agency, we've been working together. We've made the James Webb Telescope absolute mega piece of tech. It's essentially a giant space camera, but instead of using visible light like our eyes use, it uses infrared light, which allows us to track the heat of objects and things like that. And it's been scanning outside of our solar system, taking in this infrared light, and it's been looking at lots of different things. Some of the things it's been looking at is what we describe as exoplanets, so planets outside of our solar system. And we found quite a few, and one has really snagged our interest in the last few months. It has the exciting name of K218b. That's a lowercase b. And we've clocked, it's 120 light years away from us, so quite a distance. But really excitingly, it's a planet that we think has oceans, has a rich hydrogen atmosphere. And it's in what we call the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone. I think you mentioned this in a previous episode. It's the idea that your planet doesn't want to be too close or too far away from the star. It wants to be that nice Goldilocks in the middle where water is a nice liquid. That's a really good place for life to grow. And the reason we're so excited about K218b is we've been able to detect in the atmosphere a molecule called dimethyl sulfide. Mmm, tasty. Absolutely. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? Here's the thing. On Earth, dimethyl sulfide, it's only made by life. It's created by marine phytoplankton, little plants in our ocean, So if it's on another planet and we've only found it on Earth because of life, well, 
Maybe that's a place where life exists and it's pumping out that dimethyl sulfide. It might not just be us humans looking for other things in space. Who knows? Maybe the aliens themselves trying to find us to see if we're around. And we always hear whispers of UFOs and they always seem to be above the United States of America. I've never quite figured out why, but I read something about Phoenix Lights UFO. Just tell us more. Absolutely. So I'm going to shatter your world. UFOs are real. I can confirm that because UFOs simply stands for unidentified flying object. And yet every year we get loads of reports of UFOs in the sky. That doesn't necessarily mean they're aliens, but that's the whole point. We don't know what they are. And the Phoenix Lights are an amazing, massive UFO sighting. So I want you to go back in time with me. The year is 1997. It's early March. And in the United States, you're right, the states do see a lot of UFO action. In Arizona and Nevada, we had a massive amount of reports of a UFO sighting. So we're talking thousands of people across two states of America seeing the same thing. This crossed a distance of about 500 kilometers. Now, uh, if you're comparing it to the UK, 500 kilometers, well, that's almost London to Glasgow. That's a 650 kilometer journey. So this is a huge distance with lots of people seeing it. So it really becomes a topic of interest. And what they were seeing, well, the reports, they kind of got split into two. People were saying they were seeing five eerie lights floating in the sky in an L or V shape. The other style of report was that you'd see a row of brilliant lights and they were hovering or slowly falling. So this is really spooky because this isn't just one or two people who I don't know, maybe they had something in their eye. This is thousands of people all reporting the same thing. No clue what it was yet? Now, there is an official explanation. Now, this is the United States. They love their military gear. And there was an operation at the time called Operation Snowbird. So Operation Snowbird was a pilot training program of the uh, Air National Guard. So they were training their pilots, and the explanation given was this VL shape was a formation of their A-10 Thunderbolts, these subsonic attack aircraft, and they were just practicing with them, flying in formation, and that's what people were seeing. The other reports of these lights slowly falling, well, they were flares, these bright lights being launched from these A-10 aircraft. And that kind of makes sense. It lines up. It seems pretty legit because there are two Air Force bases in range of the sightings. But there were some critics to this explanation. These critics say that some of these operations, well, they don't align with all of the reports of the lights. So there were some lights reported from the north that were a bit too far away from these training programs. So it's hard to say. It seems like a pretty reasonable explanation, but there's a little bit of doubt in there as well. So good to explore this and explore the universe with you. Uh, Mike Darch from the National Space Centre, thank you so much for trying to solve some secrets. Absolutely my pleasure. It's a big, big topic. You know, it's as big as the universe, really, when you think about it. Hopefully I'll have some more conclusive answers for you soon, Dan. 
Now, for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most weird, strange, unique and deadly things in the universe, we're headed to the wilds of North America to take a peek at the Tiger Salamander. Now, it gets its name from its black, yellow and orange markings spotted across its body. And not because it's tremendously ferocious like a tiger, but it does do something deadly and mean. More on that in a second. It needs to do it to survive. A salamander, it's a type of lizard, and this is a species of mole salamander, one of the largest in the world, actually. They live all over the world from... They live all over the place in North America, from forest woodlands to large open fields, and they're very loyal to where they were born. They will travel a long way to get back home. They've got large, flat heads, massive teeth as well at points, and when they're young, this becomes very important. You see, this is amazing. When these young salamanders are at home, there might be a lot more of them around. There might not be much food either. It's competitive. You need food to survive. If there are more of your brothers and sisters around, they might take that food. So what do they do? They eat each other. Seriously, these salamanders, when they are young, are cannibals. Not too long either. After only a month or two, they start to eat each other. They fight, they battle it out. Only the strongest can survive. This is proper evolution. It's also a great way of keeping the population down uh, so you don't have problems when there isn't a lot of food about. There isn't too many of you to share it through. It helps kind of make sure the vulnerable aren't there eating too much food that could be yours. It happens when they are young. It means they are cannibals. And that's why the tiger salamander goes straight onto our dangerous stand list. Let's check in with Benny and Mal then. They are microbes, tiny little bacteria that live inside your gut that help you stay healthy. They break down food. And recently, they've been looking at some ethical dilemmas. It's a difficult choice about the right thing to do. It might be good for you, but maybe there is bad things around it. So we should think twice. Benny and Mal have been helping us with that discussion and those decisions. This time, it's all about infectious diseases. Benny and Mal's Demanding Dilemmas, with support from Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Alright, Benny and Mal here. Yeah. We're teasing out a few demanding dilemmas for you. Big word, isn't it? Dilemma. It just means having a difficult choice to make. You choose. Like whether to have a delicious bowl of ice cream or some nice sponge and custard. Good example, Mal. I love a bit of custard. You might not know this, but an ethical dilemma is a difficult choice about the right thing to do. You choose. Like if there is only one piece of sponge left and everyone's already had a helping, who gets the last bit? Dear old granny, because she's the oldest, or you, because you're a growing kid. And here's where it gets really interesting. Some ethical dilemmas are about difficult choices we have to make about how we use science. You choose dilemmas about science. Not sure I get what you mean there. Science is all around us. It helps us do a massive amount of stuff. But just because we can do some things, well, that doesn't mean we should. Yeah, imagine how upset your granny would be if you had that sponge. Ooh, I had my eye on that cake and now it's all gone. Do you want that on your conscience? Alright, calm down, mate. You choose. And I have had more than enough of that sound effect now, Mal. So let's talk about infectious diseases. <laughs> Sneezes, sneezes, spread diseases. Infectious diseases. That's right. 
We all get coughs and colds, but some more serious infectious diseases can kill. In fact, one in ten of all deaths in this country are from infectious diseases. The fact that it isn't more than that is largely due to vaccines. Vaccines are medicines, often injections or nasal sprays, which give your body some instructions for fighting these diseases. When you're a kid, your parents are encouraged to get quite a few of these for you to protect you against horrible illnesses like measles, whooping cough, German measles and rubella. That's the ones. Vaccines are a way of giving people immunity to diseases. Adults get them too sometimes. So the question is, how much choice should people have about whether they and their children have vaccinations? Yeah. Why should the government be able to tell me what to put in my body? Surely that's up to me. It's a very good point, Mal. That's called autonomy. Autonomy? Isn't that looking through a telescope at the moon? Nah, mate. Autonomy is controlling what happens to you and your body. Many people agree that people's bodies should be private, and that includes whether or not they take medicines. I mean, I don't mind taking medicines when I'm poorly, but if it's just in case, well, maybe I'd rather not. What if I have a horrible reaction? Unlikely, and reactions might be a lot less horrible than catching the disease. And the only reasons that some of the nastiest diseases, like polio and smallpox, have been virtually obliterated is that enough people have been vaccinated, so the germs have nowhere left to go. It's called population immunity, or sometimes herd immunity. Herd? What am I? A cow? But if most people are vaccinated, then maybe I don't need to be. And if most people thought like you, then polio would be laughing, wouldn't it? But hang on. Okay. All those diseases might have died out. Isn't that because we know a lot more about germs in general? People wash their hands and keep things cleaner than they did back in the olden days. Fair point. Infection control doesn't only mean vaccines. Hygiene is extremely important too. But perhaps the more angles of attack, the better, surely? I still don't see why I should be told what to do with my own body. Well, in this country, routine vaccinations aren't compulsory. The government prefers to encourage people to see the benefits in vaccinations and make it easy for people to get them at the right times. Other countries fine or even imprison people for skipping their children's vaccinations. Different ways of tackling the same problem. So, as you can see, it's a right old dilemma. A demanding dilemma. A positive brain-busting bioethical bamboozler. I wonder which side you'll agree with. Benny and Mal's Demanding Dilemmas with support from Nuffield Council on Bioethics. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you are supporting us on Fun Kids Podcast Plus... Make sure you keep your eyes peeled to your podcast feed because we're having an extra special chat with our very special guest, Emma Reynolds, who was on with us a week ago. We've got a much longer chat with her coming up if you support us on Fun Kids Podcast Plus. To do that, you could find out how on Apple Podcasts or at funkidslive.com. Now, we have loads of brilliant podcasts for you wherever you get your shows. They're on Google, Apple, Spotify, free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all around the country on that free fun kids app and if you've got a smart speaker make sure you wake up and ask it to play fun kids 